even John Templeton said that if you want to do anything, uh, earn superior returns, you have to do something different from the herd. So yeah, the endeavor is to try to look for ignored segments of the market. The first 10, 15 years of my career, I was focused on the business, earning commissions, uh, creating capital, and uh, learning from the, the masters. But uh, as fate would have had it, I after a year of trading on the floor of the Calcutta Stock Exchange, I started adapting and enjoying the thrill of the business, and the rest is history. That's the beauty of the public markets is that where you go wrong, you can just uh, exit, you know? So where we feel we have a discomfort or where we go wrong, where, you know, we're happy to cut, accept our mistakes and move on and uh, cut our losses. So they've been... Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Talks with Dollar, where we aim to deconstruct the seemingly complex world of finance and empower investors to take better and relevant investment decisions. My name is Varun Fatehpuria, and I am the founder and CEO of Dollar Wealth Management. Today, we are pleased to have one of the wizards of Dalal Street, Mr. Amitabh Sunthalia, on our show today. Amitabh is the founding director and chief investment officer of SKS Capital, the flagship entity of a single family office managing propriety investments across multiple alternative strategies with the singular goal of achieving higher risk-adjusted and absolute returns. Amitabh began his career as a research analyst with the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States after graduating from college with a degree in economics from the Davidson College in US. After a year working with the Fed, Amitabh decided to come back to India to join his family's fledgling stockbroking business. He gained some valuable experience in the early 1990s as the Indian capital markets and the economy were going through a strong wave of reforms. He developed some close relationship with the Indian investor community, forging relationships with some of the biggest institutional, corporate and ultra high net worth individuals across the country and globe. Amitabh also completed his executive MBA from the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business in Singapore. Amitabh, it is an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. We have a lot of questions, some from me, some from our investors, and a whole lot of from our audience. So we cannot really wait to dive in and get started. Thanks a lot, Varun, for your kind introduction. Uh, like I said, I'm a bit camera shy, so I'll try and make the best shot of this. No. So obviously, I think it's been a bit of a journey for you personally. Right, Amitabhji, you went to the United States to pursue a career over there, worked there for a year, and then decided to come back to India uh, to help your father in his stockbroking business, right? Obviously, I think your journey over the last three decades has been one of perseverance, one of humble beginnings, and now you have really managed to outshine yourself. What was the thinking back then in the early days to, you know, leave a well-paying job, come back to India and start something or really grow something from the ground up? So Varun, uh, undergrad education in the U.S. was a really life-changing experience for me, post which I was on a professional career track and uh, had planned to get an MBA from either Duke or IM Kolkata, both of which had offered me for a place starting in 93. While I was waiting for that, I was also interviewing for jobs. So I did not come back with the intent to join my family's stockbroking business, but was more out of uh, default. And uh, while I was kind of killing some time and uh, and said, you know, my dad needed some help. So I thought I'd, you know, for lack of better options, I sort of, uh, you know, uh, joined his business. Uh, 
But uh, like I said, it wasn't really a progressive or conducive environment for growth for somebody with my background, educational background. But uh, as fate would have had it, I after a year of trading on the floor of the Calcutta Stock Exchange, I started adapting and enjoying the thrill of the business. And the rest is history. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, in, in hindsight, we can always uh, join the dots, right? Once we have achieved a certain level of success. But uh, as I can imagine, putting myself in your shoes, obviously those decisions were tough. It was not obvious at that point in time. And and one thing we observed in, in one of your recent interviews was that you really got your break once you established close relationships with some of India's biggest investor back then. Of course, late Shri Rakesh Junjanwala ji, Radha Kishan Damani ji, that really provided you a good head start, Amitabh ji. How did those relationships come to be number one at that point in time when you were still figuring it, figuring it out? And how did you nurture those relationships over the last two to three decades to, to where you are today? Yeah, so Varun, uh, so I definitely had quite a few lucky breaks and one of them was uh, being introduced to the late Rakesh Junjanwala ji in uh, the early to mid 90s um, through a family friend and that uh, clearly was a big turning point in my career, the relationship that I developed with him as a client and all the learnings that ensued over the next couple of decades. Uh, and uh, once, you know, as a as a broker in Calcutta Stock Exchange, it was always very aspirational to work with the top Mumbai clients. So that was a good stepping stone for me to also uh, kind of, uh, you know, enhance my network in Mumbai, working with some of the best investors and clients. And, you know, there was no looking back after that. And of course, Mr. Damani, as you mentioned, was one of the other, you know, key clientele relationships that I had amongst others. And I was, like I said, very fortunate and lucky to be mentored, be uh, get the confidence and, uh, you know, a trust of these eminent people in Mumbai, who not only were great to have as clients, but also, you know, over the years, due to, a, you know, personal rapport, we developed a friendship and there's so much to learn from them over the years. Right. And we can probably see that in, in, in your investing style, right? I mean, probably I think all of these big stalwarts of our uh, investment community, uh, we can see some signs of that in how you approach your investing side. And that's something that we have observed that you have these 10 strong key tenets as your investing framework uh, that you follow, that you've put it out there in the open, some, something for people to really see and emulate, hopefully, right? And one of the things that stood out to us was this really strong advocacy and proponent for being a value investor following a value style of investing. So really a two-part question, Amitabhji, over there. Number one, what in your opinion is value style of investing, so to speak? And how do you reconcile this approach that do I need to be a value investor? Do I need to be a growth investor? Or is it an either or? Can I be one thing and not the other and vice versa? Yeah, quite a few uh, concepts packed into one question, but I'll try to my best to answer them. Uh, first of all, I took my time to start investing. As I told you, I the first 10, 15 years of my career, I was focused on the business, earning commissions, uh, creating capital, and uh, learning from the, the masters. 
and uh, I didn't really invest or trade on my own account almost for 15 odd years. Uh, but uh, after doing my executive MBA from Chicago, I think I, and I started a small research team and uh, then kind of started. Uh, by that time, I had the benefit of experiencing the mistakes and the, uh, the successes of the great masters. And I felt I had the necessary uh, educational and background and the experience to start investing and trading on my own. Uh, so that my investing journey actually started much later into my career, uh, almost halfway through my career. And uh, uh, as I guess uh, there was a lot to learn from the others, but in the end, uh, I also realized that if I were to be a successful investor and trader, I'll have to develop my own style and uh, rather than emulate somebody uh, uh, of course with all you know there's there's everybody has their nature and nurture so i thought it would be I'll, I'll serve my interest best if i were to be true to myself and true to my uh, own weaknesses and strengths uh, in with investing and trading so with that what obviously always appealed to me given my educational background given my business school uh, background with chicago of course was i came across this uh, article uh, this this rather uh, a piece from by james montier one of my uh, you know uh, well well admired investors globally uh, called 10 tenets of my uh, investment creed and uh, basically the 10 tenets were I'll just list them out quickly. Value, value, value. Be contrarian. Be patient. Be unconstrained. Don't forecast. Cycles matter. History matters. Be skeptical. Be top-down and bottoms-up. And uh, treat your clients like you would yourself. So in some ways, you know, this, this article pretty much summarized everything that I naturally believed in. And uh, I sort of put that up. On my website, I, you know, that is something that uh, I've always kept a copy of on my table for the last 10, 15 years to kind of remind myself how these things uh, uh, have shaped who I am. Uh, so, as I said, uh, there's, it's, it's uh, obviously a very generic uh, uh, article also because in the end, how you practice them, how you actually apply them to day to day to your investing and trading style is what matters. But uh, broadly, it was this, and uh, the the uh, uh, generic approach to that was to, as I said, uh, one of the tenets is be unconstrained. So whereas my background and exposure was mainly on the public market side. I also like to uh, sort of, I realize that equity markets are very uh, volatile and then there are years when there are negative returns, drawdowns, and uh, I wanted to de-risk myself from that, uh, you know, any any sort of mistakes on that front that uh, say have a couple of really bad years to lose my confidence. So I thought it's always good to diversify across asset classes. So I would always be, uh, look out for, value opportunities even across, um, let's say, high yield debt or structured finance or, you know, as we as we went along in other sophisticated asset classes and now that's obviously much more popular to do multi-asset class investing. 
including quant, including long short strategies, arbitrage, and uh, you know, so on and so forth. So that's a great point uh, that you mentioned, Amitabhji, and that it provides a perfect segue into our next question that we wanted to get your opinion on was the importance of asset allocation, the importance of diversification, right? We as investors typically know you as a public market investors investing into equities primarily, but we also know as we were discussing offline, you are a, you are as much invested into other alternative strategies, whether that's debt, whether that's um, alternatives on the performing credit or the private credit side. And, and sometimes as investors, it is easy for us to get lost in the mark-to-market -market movements of equities. What, what advice would you have to investors today about the importance of asset allocation, importance of the proverbial not having to put your eggs into one basket? Yeah, so like I said, it's, uh, you know, I've sort of followed a thumb rule of, uh, I would say, 50% uh, type of... Uh, my exposure has tended to be more on the public market side and the rest 50 tends to be diversified between uh, you know safety assets which could be cash and liquid and some you know uh, things which give you decent returns which also is liquid to take advantage of any short-term opportunities say roughly about 10 percent and the balance 40 could be a mix of alternative assets like i said there are we are seeing a you know, great plethora of uh, asset classes now with uh, advancement in technology. And uh, it's also now available to, you know, a lot of family offices such as long short funds, alternative assets, um, private equity, venture capital uh, funds. Uh, so I generally tend to, uh, apart from public markets, the other asset classes I tend to invest through other platforms and other uh, funds. Uh, but I seek out them on my own, uh, generally through my network, rather than rely on typically on, uh, you know, wealth managers or the standard advice that one gets in the market. So, uh, you know, there are exposures to uh, a lot of yield-based assets, let's say red housing funds or high-yield credit funds uh, through various different differentiated platforms. Um, yeah, so... You know, some are more moderate risk, some are high risk, but generally one tends to go with, uh, seek out higher risk adjusted returns, you know, not necessarily the highest returns or not necessarily the safest ones out there. <clears throat> Absolutely, right. I think as investors, sometimes it is very easy to get detailed and chase the uh, highest, highest sort of like, you know, generating instruments, but I think somewhere along the journey, people also uh, tend to mistake that it is so much more about losing less in a in a bear market than about gaining the most in a in a bull market, right? I mean, something if you're able to stand that, uh, that volatility uh, of equities, you're probably better off putting all of your money over there. But if you're an investor who, you know, much rather have a smoother investing journey, then at that point in time, having a well diversified portfolio of lowly correlated assets as you just talked about would work well for a lot of the investors even if they are not sort of you know have the ticket size of investing into alternatives like private equity and uh performing credit right so 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 just talking uh specifically uh about your own personal journey and we have seen that you tend to be a bit of a contrarian when it comes to uh 
investing in public equities and and intuitively that is where a lot of the returns tend to also accrue uh, right what is that one contrarian bet if you want to talk to our uh, investors today that really gave you that so called multi bagger return uh so there have been quite a few uh, varun but uh, as you rightly said uh, there is you know even john templeton said that if you want to do anything uh, earn superior returns you have to do something different from the herd so yeah the endeavor is to try to look for ignored segments of the market where uh, or ideas where you know uh, which is a ignored and b under owned and c uh, where there is fairly you know good value and uh, one has a, a thesis on why that value can be unlocked so one recent example in the last few years would be if i were to name a company with the disclaimer that i uh, have a significant uh, part of my portfolio invested in it is a company called lt foods uh, with which is better known by its dawat brand so uh, it's been in a, a sector which has been not been so, uh, which is basically the branded basmati rice sector so it's in the food in a gender, generic terms it's in the food business it's in the branded food segment uh, it's got a global business with uh, so it does tick a lot of the boxes that i like about the business boring but it also has been a steady kind of a mid teens growth business in terms of both revenues and profitability it's got a strong uh, management team a strong business family there has been uh, you know there was skepticism in the market about the quality of the management the quality of the business the fact that it's of commoditized nature uh, there have been some bad apples in the business in that segment sector also which there are in almost every uh, sector that we know of and uh, so there have been you know uh, the sector had a bad name 8 10 years ago because of which uh, certain good companies were being ignored so the sector also had seen a lot of consolidation and so all these factors were ignored last few years and uh, the stock was trading quite cheap and uh, we had the good fortune of tracking the company meeting the management over the years developing comfort about the quality of the management and the quality of their business and uh, uh, and like i said the always for us icing on the cake is uh, when it's available cheap so when you're getting something at uh, single digit multiples entry multiples with a decent track record and a decent outlook for uh, growth then you know one feels that it's uh, one can just invest and sit on it to kind of let the let the story play out so some part of it is already played out but i'm still quite optimistic that it is still trading quite cheap compared to the rest of the uh, companies in its se- sector great so so while we know that winners obviously you know make you happy and provide you that boost of confidence as an investor sometime uh, being invested into things which did not pan out the way you expected also provides a really good learning so so do you have something which did not play out to your expectations and it provided you a great uh, learning experience also yeah like i said we probably have an equal number of uh, misses as we have hits <laughs> but by grace of god we uh, 
you know, we because that's the beauty of the public markets is that where you go wrong, you can just uh, exit, you know. So where we feel we have a discomfort or if we go wrong, where, you know, we're happy to cut, accept our mistakes and move on and uh, cut our losses. So there have been, you know, numerous examples of uh, things which haven't worked and where we've gone wrong. But we're happy to accept our mistakes with humility and move on. And I've been, you know, I'm trying to think of what the best example would be. But uh, one name that comes to mind from a few years ago is a small education company called MT Educare, which, uh, you know, where again, I thought, you know, it was a, it had a good track record of the past and it was going through some temporary difficulties. And I thought, the company was inherently good. They were into, uh, you know, uh, tutorials online and stuff. And I visited their center, met the management. They seemed to be uh, having a, you know, sorting out their issues. And we made a, uh, you know, but the only good thing is that we don't make a big bet to start with on day one. We kind of, increase, you know, take our time to increase our bet. So we did, had made a reasonable bet on it. And uh, then, we, but in hindsight, uh, we went wrong for, and then the learning was that maybe we didn't do our homework in terms of the call. Uh, in, in hindsight, the quality of the management, the quality of the business, the balance sheet, everything was a bit suspect. And maybe they were over-promising. The management was too eager to sell their story. That's another learning that I've had that it's better to go seek out managements who don't want to meet you rather than... Uh, you know, take the easy way out and meet managements who are willing to come and meet you in your offices or otherwise who are uh, chasing you as investors. So, uh, you know, and that's sometimes a problem in India because uh, most investors like the comfort of managements who are too overly investor friendly rather than those who are focused on running their businesses and doing the job, you know, and, uh, you know, of course, uh, so that was the learning here. Yeah, so we have seen how uh, you personally as an investor has really matured uh, over the last two to three decades, some with the winners, some with the losers. But something that has perhaps stayed uh, consistent is your uh, apprehension for taking on a lot of leverage, right? This is something that you had talked about earlier as well, where uh, I think in your early days, maybe due to lack of capital and then perhaps a lack of risk appetite at that point in time, you did not really take on leverage, even when a lot of your clients were doing so. Uh, today, perhaps the situation could be the same, but we are seeing a lot of youngsters getting into FNO trading and losing a lot of money just because the access is so easy, right? What advice, Amitabh Ji, today would you have to investors who are either getting started with investing, getting onto hooked with FNO and leverage, and then probably at some point in time will burn their uh, fingers if they do not do this full time? Uh, I don't really have any advice on this because it's a very personal thing. Uh, I, like I said earlier, for me, leverage was not true to my nature, uh, just my conservative uh, uh, sort of background, experience, education. Somehow, naturally, I never, uh, you know, I, I sort of uh, took to leverage and there's something I was never comfortable with to uh, borrowing and investing or you know trading beyond my means but at the same time my uh, mentor and guru was a master at it so that's something that he was very good at and uh, and I admired that 
but and I could have easily have followed in that footsteps because I saw it really work well for him. But uh, but I also accepted that that was not part of my nature. So here was the main uh, thing, which uh, I guess one has to keep in mind that you just have to go with your own nature while investing. So it didn't suit my nature, so I just stayed away from it. It was not so hard for me to stay away from it. So Amitabhji, that provided a good segue also into the the, the concept of risk management, uh, where again, it is an underappreciated concept, especially with the retail investors. They do not tend to fully grasp what risk is and how they can control and manage uh, what they have, especially during a downturn, right? You as a big institutional also investor managing your own capital, how do you personally see risk and what are some of the key risk management practices that you have in place? Uh, yeah, Barut, so risk is something which is uh, often misunderstood. Um, not that I can claim to be an expert on that, but uh, broadly one, of course, as we discussed earlier is just to be diversified across different asset classes is one way of managing risk that, you know, for me, uh, of course, the two ways to look at risk, one is volatility and the other is permanent loss of capital. I think uh, what's far more important risk uh, as far as risk is concerned is permanent loss of capital. And, uh, but, you know, of course, the standard measure of risk is volatility also, which is, it's one can argue not really risk, you know, uh, there's just fluctuations. So, um, so there is a little bit of a problem in terms of how we measure risk also. Um, in equities, there are tends to be a huge drawdowns, as we know. Uh, of course, as uh, some investors have a stomach to digest those big drawdowns more easily and some don't. I personally belong to the latter camp. I don't like to see big drawdowns in my portfolio that does shake up my confidence levels. And, uh, you know, uh, I also do can, tend to get swayed a little bit in terms of the prevailing sentiment. So one way I kind of manage that is just to cut exposure when there is the sentiment cycle turns and uh, reduce my holdings to go with the trend and uh, vice versa. And generally not try to catch the bottoms or the tops because yeah. uh, you can't really, you know, time that exactly. Uh, but like, yeah, there's, there's, like I said, for and the other way is just to be diversified and kind of have a mix of assets, hopefully which aren't correlated. All right. And talking about tops and bottoms, obviously, I think... Uh given where we are in the environment right now, I think the, specifically with the mid-cap and the small-cap space, the exuberance that we have seen in both of these segments over the last uh, pro probably year to date, right? I mean, it has been somewhat extraordinary, primarily driven by uh, retail uh, investors' euphoria, right? And obviously, we are seeing some signs of frothiness. How do you view when a particular segment has become frothiness? Are there some key metrics that you typically track? And how are you seeing the market today right now? specifically in those segments? Uh, I don't think I can pinpoint any key metrics that I track. Uh, it's more of a intuitive thing. Uh, as you rightly said, there is a lot of frothiness in the certain segments of the market. And we've seen that movie before. We've seen that in 18, we saw that in 2021. 20, so, uh, 
one of the tenets, as you uh, as, as you recall it from what I said earlier, cycles matter. So part of the cycles is the sentiment cycle, the greed and fear cycle, emotions, uh, behavioral economics, science, you know, the trend, sentiment cycle. So all these things constitute, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, a certain, uh, you know, type of cycle in the market, which is not exactly a business cycle. So we've seen that in the past that there's a, a wave, you know, when that wave is there now that how much that wave rises is again, anybody's guess. But we're in that it just seems that all the markers do point to that wave being quite mature, the way the SME, the the, the indicators that keep coming across is the the uh, flurry of SME IPOs, the yeah. kind of uh, excitement that we're seeing in terms of oh, subscriptions of hundreds, 400,000 times, the listing gains of these unknown names, uh, uh, without regard to any valuations, even the craze on the main board IPOs side, you know, the, uh, and of course the frothiness in a lot of the small and mid caps, the continued trend that we've seen in the last six months or so, which, uh, you know, it always starts as a trickle and becomes a flood and you, you know, of course, the flip side of that is markets were looking hugely attractive back in March after a two-year, almost a two-year consolidation, valuation-wise, sentiment-wise, everything. Uh, it turned around from there and, uh, you know, three months into it, it reached probably its fair value and now we're in the slightly overvalued zone. But, uh, but there are, like I said, there are still pockets of frothiness, there are pockets of fair value in the market. So, the way I like to navigate it is stick to what where I feel uh, valuations are not too stretched. I've already named the say one example where uh, and there are several other examples where one can find companies which are and you can see those laggards. Some of the times it's the laggards moving. Sometimes it's just value being discovered discovered by the market. So there's enough, uh, like I said, pockets uh, to play. You know. Uh, contrarian or find those price value mismatches in the market even in what seems like a frothy market just requires more work great uh amitabh ji this was absolutely fantastic you've not done a whole lot of media interactions in the past so we'll uh, take this one on our back of uh putting you out there in front of the camera and hopefully our audience our investors actually get a chance to uh hear from you directly um, how investors are actually thinking about the market today, uh, where are they finding pockets of opportunity, and most importantly, uh, what can they learn from an investor who has uh, started small and really spent the better half of three decades uh, investing in the Indian public equity markets, seeing multiple cycles of you know ups and downs. So uh, hopefully our audience got to learn quite a bit from one of the wizards of the Lal Street right from Kolkata. And uh, it was a pleasure having you, Amitabh ji, and hopefully uh, we'll get to speak soon uh, on our podcast sometime later. Uh, for all our audience today, again, if you like this episode, hit on our like button and do subscribe uh, for more of such wizards of the Lal Street in the coming future. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Varun. You've been too kind, way too kind to me. Uh, so thanks for having me on the show. I enjoyed it. Talking to you. Thank you. you.